Welcome to the You Lead Podcast, brought to you by the Council for School Leadership of the Alberta Teachers Association. Hello and welcome to the first edition of the You Lead Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. In this episode, we bring you a breakout session with Dr. Simon Breakspear from the 2019 You Lead Conference in Banff, Alberta. You'll hear Dr. Breakspear talk about developing teacher expertise and ways he suggests planning professional development to maximize impact on teacher learning. Dr. Breakspear is known internationally for helping educational leaders navigate complex change, harness research evidence, and drive continuous improvement for better learning. He's the founder and executive director of Agile Schools. He's also a visiting fellow at the University of New South Wales and research fellow of the Asia-Pacific Center for Leadership and Change at the Education University of Hong Kong. Now, if you like this episode, why don't you consider joining us at the ULEAD conference this coming year in Banff? You can get more information and register at ulead.ca. Now, here's Dr. Simon Breakspear speaking about teaching sprints. Who are trying to solve a problem, and it's mostly about teacher learning. So, I want to share something with you, and I want to give you two minutes to read it and to make sense of it with the person next to you. Today, we are not looking at agile leadership, and you will get into trouble if you blend the two of them. Now, we'll come around, and I will give you a little hit on the hand and say, stop that, lazy. Sometimes people have got one idea. This is the person's name. They're a semi-researcher type like me. They have an idea and they do that idea for three years. I've got so many ideas I can't keep up with it. And the problem is other people are hearing it and they're saying Breakspear and then they're merging it all. They are different. They are serving different points. And it's our job as leaders to understand the intent of this and then make sure we don't confuse it. So I want to tell you this. Demonstrably lifting student learning is the goal. All teacher learning should result in some time in long-term changes for student learning. But I want to say focusing always on the targets and the student learning isn't the best way to get there. I want to say investing in teacher expertise, and I'm using that word precisely, I'm going to give you a masterclass on the cognitive science of expertise in a minute, is the best way to get to that sustainable improvement. Thirdly, that the vehicle is not you lead and it's not uh, other special conferences and it's not special instructional coaches who come in sometimes that the most of the improvement, the vehicle is local teacher teams. And lastly, therefore, learning sprints is the professional growth process that lives within that team to build contextually appropriate expertise with the impact for long-term and sustainable changes on student learning, not short-cycle data bump-ups that don't last for kid or teacher. Okay, a minute, turn to the person next to you. What do you make of this? Go for it. Okay, I'm going to pause you. We are doing a masterclass, 55 minutes drinking from a fire hose. And I need you to know that everything you could need to implement learning sprints is free and available online at learningsprints.com. And saying that sounds like a pitch, but how can it be a pitch if it's free? So, but I always say you get what you pay for. So, what I want you to do is not worry about the specifics of the tools and the process. You're smart people, you'll get your head around that in all of seven minutes. I'd like to have the leadership discussion with you today about why a guy like me ever bothered to get into the teacher learning space at all. And it came out of doing work on instructional leadership and someone who I regard incredibly and someone who I would say over and over again, if you want robust, empirical, thoughtful work on leadership with no ounce of commercialism, 
solutionitis or anything, Vivian Robinson is the best on the planet. And she's a take no prisoners, no BS kind of thinker, and I love her for it. Now, yeah, go New Zealand. Yeah, I'm all right with it. I'm okay with it. Educationally, go New Zealand in rugby. Boo. All right. So, I need it. Like, we haven't won in 10 years. So, let me just, you ready to feel the logic? Otherwise, learning sprints will become everything I just critiqued next door. And don't you think I don't already see it? Don't you think I don't already see it? People picking the shiny word, using it as a prepackaged solution rather than a platform, a set of ideas that needs to be locally contextualized. So let's go from first principles. You ready? Your job as instructional leaders, whether leaders of teams, leaders of schools, or leaders of divisions, is to have an impact on student learning. And Vivian's work, which was not divisional level, it was middle, leader, middle, middle leadership and principal level. And back in 2008, her study for the New Zealand government, her analysis. These are the five key areas that she identified as practices of leaders that had the biggest impact on student learning. And of the big five, one had double the impact of the others. You don't have to know how to read effect size to know that one bar is twice as big as the other. All right. What is that one? Promoting and participating in teacher learning and development. She suggested empirically in her study that the teachers that didn't just say, oh, well, I do embedded professional capacity building and my teachers do this. No, the teachers who actually see their principal turn up with them, learn alongside them, be vulnerable with them, build pedagogical content knowledge with them, actually do the stuff they're asking the educators to do, they can have an incredibly powerful impact on learning. Now, I can understand this, particularly in the Australian-New Zealand context, and maybe the Canadian, you know, don't have lived experience. We're so sort of anti-hierarchical that the one thing you're allowed to do if you're getting bigger in the hierarchy, the one thing you're not allowed to do is act like you're getting bigger in the hierarchy. And so even if you're the leader, we need you to not just set up the professional learning and lead, to have standing in the common room. You've got to be there, and you've got to do the stuff, and you've got to wrestle. Does this make sense in your context? Australian New Zealanders, do you agree? Yeah, okay. So what I started to realize is everyone was being told to be an instructional leader at all levels of the system, but actually a lot of the models we were using for embedded collaborative learning were frustrating us. For some teachers, they're, and I'm not, you know, their general collaborative teacher learning time, PLC, PL, PTL, uh, uh, TLCs, whatever you call them, and I'm not talking about a model, I'm not talking about a company's model, I'm talking about from the literature, that we, you know, nothing that's trademarked, the actual professional learning communities come out of community practice literature, 30-year history of the literature. Um, people often struggled, and sometimes they'd say that was the slowest 50 minutes of my life. Or they'd say it was very cathartic, we had a lot of conversation. Or they'd say the first six months was great, but then we needed to go deeper and we didn't have the tools and frameworks to do it. And lastly, they were saying some of the stuff that I most regarded, sometimes they said it felt like we never got into the real work and we spent all our time trying to get to a common problem of practice. We get three months in and we're like, we're still trying to work out exactly what we're scanning, what we're looking at and what we're doing. And, and actually for the best volunteers, it was brilliant. But for the majority of teams, two terms in, they were sometimes wondering where all this collaborative inquiry was going. Has anyone been there before? So I, two years ago, two and a half years ago, said, oh, in my Alberta work, why don't we try to map something out? I'm not a teacher learning expert. My doctorate was in international benchmarking. I do my work in leadership. And we said, well, let's start to co-create something together. So I need you to know, number one, that there's a lot of ideas in learning sprints that look a lot like other stuff you've seen. I'm not trying to be original, I'm just trying to be helpful. Learning sprints brings together a lot of the things we've learned about how to help teachers come together to learn together, but it's much stronger in two areas. One, it has a stronger focus on the development of expertise in an explicit way, 
rather than a hopeful byproduct of collaborative inquiry. It really puts expertise right at the center, even above student learner outcome growth. Secondly, I made it really simple. If I've got a seven to eight step process, I can't remember where I'm up to. Has anyone ever been shopping before? And this might be a gendered comment, but sometimes those of us with a Y chromosome can walk along and say, I'm going to the shops. And then you start listing things and someone else says, can you get this and get this? And then someone thoughtfully says, why don't you write a list? You say, no, no, I'll remember. <laughs> and if the number of things coming on your item come over three, whoever gets home and go, oh, sorry, I forgot that. The brain really struggles, plus or minus five, plus or minus two after five, but actually for most people it's about three to four and then it falls off. So I wanted to create a model that was so simple that anyone could remember it. Because if it's not in working memory, no one's thinking about it. No one remembers that they're up to the sixth step of a seven-step thing. <laughs> Elegant simplicity. Prepare sprint review. Prepare sprint review. Everyone can pick it up. It's meant to be simple on the front end, but you can go as deep as a PhD if you want to dig down in the other part. We've got to do more work on making simple frameworks because the work is too complex for the framework to be complex. So we tried to create something that was very simple. The hard thing is people straight away see this and they start thinking it's about short-term bumping up of data. And I want to argue today that that is not a good way of sustainably changing student learner outcomes because learning, in Sweller's definition, is a change in long-term memory. And when you often bump things up over one to four weeks, it doesn't stay that way. So the core goals of learning sprints is actually to change something in the teacher's head more so than changing something in the student's head. At the end of a teacher learning sprint, expertise need to be developed. And sometimes more expertise is developed when the student learning doesn't move in the direction that we wanted. Sometimes the teacher learning in a sprint is more successful when the outcome isn't hit because we learn much more from having a hypothesis that doesn't play out in the world than just meaninglessly moving through and seeing whether the data moved in the direction we hoped. So we tried to make it simple. <laughs> One. Number two, we tried to take the emphasis off short-term, narrow, bump-it-up kind of cycles that don't result in long-term changes for teachers or students. And thirdly, we had a mantra, and it was this. If it doesn't work for teachers, it doesn't work. Not for the volunteer teachers who say, oh, three years ago we did action research. This year we're doing collaborative inquiry. It's so wonderful. I love it. I know you'll do anything we put in front of you. I'm talking about the 85, the rest of us. It's got to work for the rest of us, and I include myself in that. And if teachers are telling us they're overloaded and exhausted, we need to solve the challenge of this. Practice improvement will never be in the top three things to do in any day. Do we all agree on that? Right? When I'm home with my kids... I don't think getting better as a, pre as a parent is one of the top three things to do today. I'm like, can everyone be fed, bathed, and safe by the end of the day? Go. <laughs> I don't think, when will I find opportunities today to reflect on my parenting? Turn to chapter four of this. <laughs> I, got, I, got three under four. I got three under five now. It's going to be bad on Friday, jet lagged. So we've got to say, teachers, stop saying, oh, well, your professionalism is about improving all the time and your mark is to have a growth mindset and we need our learners to be learners and you to be lead learners. You say, yeah, 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 I'm exhausted. And so what I did is I went to a new literature uh, that wasn't really applied in education. It was behavioral science. We know lots in behavioral science about how to make change happen. And the basic rule is this. Don't try to motivate people or guilt them for having the wrong mindset. Make the task easier to do. 
The basic finding on financial change, health change, any kind of change, is stop trying to tell people to have the mindset that you have. Just makes them not like you, doesn't change the behavior. Rather, say, what I'm going to do is to make this easy enough for everyone to make progress, even if you're not motivated. And as you make progress, I hope that I'll actually create motivation as a byproduct of making progress, not as a prerequisite for getting started. Is that making sense? So if you're interested in sprints, you should be interested in because you're sick of short-termism in the movement of student learning. You should use sprints because you love other frameworks, but you do acknowledge they're too complex for a lot of the people we're asking them to use them. Thirdly, you might use sprints because you care about your colleagues enough to say, I'm going to ask you to do reasonable things because I know practice improvement will never be in the top three things on any day, but here's the problem. If they're not in the top three things for me to do today and they're not in the top three things for me to do this week and they don't end up being in the top three things this term, suddenly I've got a whole term where I've taught but I haven't got better at teaching. I've taught but I haven't got better at teaching. I've taught two terms but I haven't got better at teaching. And bit by bit, we don't get the growth. Uh, is anyone here in their first two years of teaching? Hey, nice to have you. A round of applause for our new colleague. <laughs> Stick with us, it gets better. Um, hey, uh, if I think, is there anything that you've got better at teaching at in the last two years? Yeah. <laughs> but I reckon if we are, you could probably list a whole bunch of stuff, right? I often ask New Year's teachers, give me a couple of things you've got better at. What can you cause learning in now that you couldn't cause learning? They talk about behavioral management, setting up learning, collaborative learning, boom. Ask 20-year seasoned professional, what is something you can do more effectively now in the classroom that you couldn't do a term ago? Sometimes they pause for a while to think. And it's not a gotcha question, but it's because bit by bit what happens is practice improvement is never the priority, and then bit by bit a term goes, two terms goes, a couple of years goes. There is no judgment from me that is a problem that the system has not set up, processes of adult learning that are what we call rigorous and human. And Corey and I, we actually created this kind of phrase and we're talking about it about a year ago and I, I kind of first introduced it as ULEAD. I pretty much use ULEAD to test very new ideas. That's why I was very raw this morning because I hadn't done that before. Um, uh, and, and we were talking about this. Corey wrote a great blog post about it. This idea that Sprints tries to be rigorous. It's not a choose-your-own-adventure professional learning. What are you interested in? Oh, go for that. Yeah, pursue your curiosity. I'm sure it will end up in cumulative growth for the school. No, it won't. Imagine you said to nurses in public hospitals, look, you are welcome to inquire into any area of your practice that you are passionate about. And even if the ward's outcomes are telling us that we need to improve our practice in this area, we're giving you this time to pursue areas of interest. That's not going to happen. It needs to be rigorous. We've got to be asking, what do our students need us to improve next? As Helen Timperley would say. We've got to be saying, what does the research suggest? Not just looking at each other's eyes and say, magically, a new idea will emerge. Let's get some research on the table and say, what does our field? What do expert practitioners know about this? Let's say things like not just talk about um, whether or not we enjoyed the change we made. Let's say whether we've got observable impact evidence that it worked for kids. It's got to be rigorous. It's got to be human. It's got to be small. It's got to be manageable. It's got to be easy to do. We're not there yet. But what do you reckon, Corey? I think we're better than we were a year ago as a community and we'll, we'll get better each time. So basically the idea behind sprints is that your teachers choose an area to develop their expertise in. You start off mostly by thinking, what is an area that I want to build my expertise in? Because even though you want growth in student learning, 
me too, the best way to get sustainable growth in student learning is to focus on the teacher expertise that would give you that growth in student learning. This is a big shift for people and if you feel uncomfortable, it's a good signal that you're just very student-centered and I love that. But in this sense, it might actually give you the wrong strategy. So if you want growth for student learning, you've got to get sustainable growth in teacher expertise. Let that sit for a moment. So let's say that we do some sort of intervention, we bump up the kid in place value, equivalence of fractions, this area of fluency in reading. I'm using literacy examples, numeracy examples, not because they're the only things you can do, because everyone can understand. What happens in learning is it never stays where you left it, like I was saying before. So what will often happen, you'll bump it up, and then it'll often go down again. That's normal. Learning takes multiple spaced reviews, multiple retrievals to sustain because learning is a change in long-term memory, not a short-term bump up of performance that we can collect quickly on a formative assessment result and then infer that learning has changed. Performance has been, has occurred. Learning probably hasn't yet occurred. Very important not to fall into the trap of short-term movement being learning. It's probably just performance. Learning is a change in long-term memory. We've got to get more interested in how professional learning is changing long-term, medium-term student results, not just the short-term. So you focus in on expertise, and in each sprint, we want to say, uh, actually, we're more interested in what's happening in the the teacher's head than the student's head. Because if we change what's happening in the teacher's head, stick with me on this. Let's say I run a learning sprint and we're doing sprints in numeracy and I choose because of the data and the research to work on place value. Does anyone here think that their division could do some work on some place value expertise? Yeah? Equivalence of fractions, multiplication, trust in the count, same five things in every jurisdiction I work in. And so what we do is we'd say, hey, rather than just trying to bump up a couple of kids in place value understanding, why don't we bump up the teacher's expertise in the teaching of place value? He gets to understand where place value sits within the numeracy progression, understands the prerequisite understandings in early years numeracy that are prerequisites for that. He gets to understand some of the misconceptions that mostly come up and the sorts of look-fors in the classroom. Starts to build an understanding of the sorts of formative assessment evidence that could be collected as evidence of learning in that area. They build expertise. Making sense? At the end of that four weeks, let's say it went well, and the group of kids he or she was focusing on move up. Awesome. Then what happens three months later when one of those kids is no longer showing the same level of performance in that area? Do we have to run another sprint on it? No. What we want to do is use the expertise built in the sprint that we ran in May 2019 to support that kid mid-June to bump it up again. And then next year, you're going to get a fresh class. He might even move grade levels. And he's coming to the part where he or she is teaching place value. Does she have to go, oh, I've got to run another sprint? No. If the sprint developed expertise and place value last May, actually might be teaching in 2020 and the kids are getting the benefit of the expertise that was developed last May. You see, what I believe is that if we can choose four to six things a year to get deliberately better in, we build out our expertise and then not only every kid in our class will get the benefit, every future kid that we teach will get the benefit. It's all about the changes in the teacher expertise. So what do we know about expertise? Can everyone um, just hold in their body where they think the expertise is located? Hold in your body where you think the expertise is located. Everyone's like, does he want me to touch my head? (laughs) He does. He wants you to touch your head. 
for some reason, when we talk about teacher practice, we always think about what a teacher's doing, right? And what they're saying and when they're moving. And all of that, I know this is crazy, is actually being directed by what's in their head. Can I give you a 30 seconds on the cognitive science of expertise? You ready? Everyone hold their short-term working memory. Frontal lobe. Terrific, but can only hold a certain number of things. When you put too many things on the frontal lobe, it's like too many things on the table, things start falling off. So how do we ever do complex work? Well, what we do is we transfer certain knowledge into our long-term memory. It's hard to get things in long-term memory. It takes lots of effort. But when you get things in long-term memory, which has almost unlimited capacity, when I'm working on my table of short-term memory, I'm allowed to pull in real time all of that knowledge out. In fact, it happens automatically such that I'm sort of this special little person who's attacking this problem right now, but I'm drawing on everything in long-term memory. Has anyone had the same trip from work to school for a while or the office for a while? Has anyone got to their office, sat on the desk and say, how did I get here? (laughs) You're like, oh, crap. Did I go through a school zone? I'm an educator. What will they think? So how do you do complex work like that? How do you do complex decision making on autopilot? And it's a form of expertise. You build up what we call a mental model. And this says it's a cognitive map. Uh, I was really fortunate when I was, this is a bit of a, actually, when I was in my doctorate, I got to go to Paris for two months. That's pretty good, right? My wife and I were there, we didn't have much money, and so all we did was walked. And I was doing some work at the OECD and we walked, and I built up a cognitive map, I realized, in Paris, because all we did is walk. We didn't have any money, I was a student, we're walking around. And I got to go to a conference earlier this year in Paris, and I turned up and I walked, and I thought, I don't need to look at a map. And I was walking around, and I see visual cues and visual cues, and what I realized is I have a cognitive map in my head. I don't have a cognitive map of Calgary. I get in a car outside a hotel and someone takes me somewhere else. If I got in a car and tried to drive myself, I would have the GPS out and I would have no idea what... Does everyone know the experience of having a cognitive map of a city and not? It's actually a form of knowledge built into your expertise and what happens is when you're driving around a place you know, you can draw on that in real time. Is this making any sense to anyone? Well, why don't you help me try to apply that to the teaching of numeracy, to the teaching of literacy? Early on when we're getting going, we really don't have a cognitive map of the area. We're working hard, but it's a little bit like me driving around Calgary. Everything's coming in, it's overwhelming me, and I'm doing the best I can. If you can systematically build my expertise, what happens over time is that I get some forms of knowledge start to build up in my long-term memory. I get knowledge of pathways. What roughly is the pathway that kids move through to develop in this area? I get knowledge of pedagogy. What are the sorts of approaches that have rich responses that have a likelihood of helping kids move? I have knowledge of students. What motivates students? And particularly my contextual knowledge of these students. And then lastly, I get knowledge of self-regulation. I start to learn how to learn to get better in this area. One of the problems in education is we don't talk enough about teacher expertise. We talk about quality teaching or great people and people committed. I agree with all those things, but really at the base of expertise is people who can make the right decision at the right time. How do you make the right decision at the right time? You need to build up your expertise. Expert teachers don't just do all the same thing. Expert teachers do the right thing at the right time. And Sprints is designed to systematically, piece by piece, build the expertise in the teacher's head. If I take the Paris example, 
Don't do all of Paris. That's exhausting. Pick one little area of Paris to walk around for a couple of days. Build the cognitive map. Get lost. Get the visual cues. That'd be like building out place value. And then I move to the next part. And I walk around and I go it and I learn about fractions. And guess what my brain starts to do? It connects what I've learned about place value, what I'm learning about fractions. And I start to build up a mental model such that I become one of those teachers who can walk into a classroom I haven't even been and very quickly make a good call about where these kids are up to, what they need to do next, and what they should do to make progress. The game is expertise. And there will be no growth in targets in a sustainable way unless you build that expertise. It could be in literacy could be in numeracy. Could you put your hand up if you're doing any work whatsoever in any of these areas? Hand up. Cool. Could you put your hand up if you're asking teachers to work in things like formative assessment, feedback strategies, self-regulated learners, metacognition, build the capacity to learn as you go. All of these things require the capacity of educators to build their expertise. I'm a former high school science teacher. I might have said, look, I teach science and biology, but I don't know how to teach reading comprehension and vocab as I teach biology. I had an expertise gap. Oh, I know how to teach this content. Sit down, shut up. I get good results. Oh, you want me to build the expertise to not only get good results, but actually build their capacity to be metacognitive. Oh, I'm going to have to build my expertise to know how to teach the content and teach them to become a learner. And the evidence says that has to be done in one domain. You can't call someone a good learner because they're at the learner class. They have to learn it in biology, learn in mathematics, learn in history, learn in geography. Those teachers need to build their expertise in these areas. So whether it's competencies, high-impact practices, literacy and numeracy, Sprints is about systematically building their expertise one piece at a time. And I reckon you'll do four to eight in a year. And if you pick the right four things, you could dramatically change the teaching in any of those areas in a sustainable way. I'm going to pause and ask you this question. In what areas in your school or division... Are you trying to build the expertise of your teachers? Where do you want to build the expertise of your teachers? And of course, you can include yourself in this. Go for it. All right. So I told you, you're kind of getting a masterclass in the cognitive science of expertise. Can I get a couple of people to yell out? And there's no evaluation or judgment on this. Um, we probably include ourselves in any of these areas. But where are some areas that you would like to, and I normally say, enhance the expertise of your educators? Enhance your expertise of your educators. What are some of the areas? Can we yell some out? Okay. Is there any particular area of formative assessment you'd like? A formative assessment, a particular subject at all, or a certain type of formative assessment? Okay. Love it. So what I'm saying, you have a broad thing, and then that's still kind of, that might be France. Then you've got to get it down to Paris. And then you get it down because I can't learn to formatively assess in general because formative assessment is based on an understanding of the pathway and on what someone was sort of saying, oh, what's learning? Well, uh, learning is a change in long-term memory. Uh, making a, an inference about learning is always an inference. We can't observe learning. We can observe what students say, do, write or make as evidence of whether or not they're making progress and that is always domain-specific. So the reason why you're failing at doing general formative assessment work is formative assessment, in my mind, is not a generic skill other than the understanding of it. After that, 
After that, it requires domain-specific expertise. If you take Dylan Willen's brilliant work on things like a hinge question, the question I ask to know whether or not you've understood the concept, well, how will I generate a hinge question unless I have an understanding of the pathway and the evidence that I'd need to generate to know whether a kid seems to have learned something? My language is seems to have learned. Learning is always an inference. You can't ever see learning. That's why John's um, title, Visible Learning, is so provocative. Learning's not visible. Right? Learning's not visible. You can't see learning. It's going on here. You're inferring that learning is occurring by observable impact about what a student says, does, writes, or makes. So I love it. Formative assessment. We could riff on this all the time. If you've got any investment in formative assessment going on, you could add sprints to it to help people actually build expertise as you do that great work on formative assessment. All right. Can I hear a couple more? Yes, Carlos. Okay. Great. So I want the teachers to be able to calibrate an understanding. Am I actually hitting the mark with these students? Uh, and so I might break that down a little bit. Carlos, I might say, is anyone else from Paraguay here? I gave the New Zealanders a shout. I was like, woo, Paraguay. So good to have you here, Carlos. Um, so uh, I would say uh, what you're really getting at underlying is the capacity to be a responsive teacher. At the front end, it's mostly about the science of understanding prior knowledge. Are these students now ready to learn the thing I'm about to? So I'd like to build their diagnostic assessment. Do I think these kids are ready to learn? And then I'd like to build on your idea, which is once I make a judgment about their prior knowledge, when I'm in the lesson, am I looking for evidence to see whether I was right or not? Or am I willing to recalibrate to say, ah, I thought the kids knew this, because to be honest, I taught them last year and they should know it. (laughs) See, I was a high school teacher. They say, oh, I'm 15 minutes in to a five-lesson scope and sequence. And it's clear to me some of the kids either don't know something or more likely um, they can recognize something, but they can't recall it. Big differences in memory. You know when you see someone's face? You'll know it when I do it to you. I say, good to see you again. I know I've met you, but I can't recall your name right now until you give me one other contextual cue. I gave away my little secret there. I won't say good to see you again if I don't. I don't know. I know I've seen the face. Can't get the context yet. Big difference between recognition and recall. So some kids are recognizing, I've seen this before, but they're not at recall, so I might take 15 minutes to reteach something, bump up that learning to the level of recall, and then we get going. Really nice one of expertise. It'd have to be domain-specific or subject-specific. Ah, can I get two more? Over on this side, you lazy bunch. <laughs> Just one at a time. You could cue at the mic if that would be... Come on, where do you want to bump up expertise? Great, good one. Is there any particular sub-area? Like, I think numeracy is a good Paris. Is there any uh, Arundas month that you want to focus on? Yeah, nice. Okay, so the application of numeracy in science, cool. And even then, we could go down, and I'd probably want to get the science expert subject teacher helping us. What is the part we want to get into? Uh, any of the big six of reading, or big five of reading, depending on not whether you uh, include oral language? Yes? Okay, great. So... um. So one of the areas I really like to say, how to build teacher expertise in, first, the teaching of vocabulary, which would be a broad area. Uh, it's often, we, it's one of the big five that's totally overlooked. We can't know it'll happen, but actually, reading comprehension is utterly correlated with vocabulary. So a kid will read out of their, like, much better in their reading comprehension if they're reading an area that they have strong vocabulary in. So they're intertwined. So the teaching of vocabulary is a really good one. And then you said, actually, vocabulary and social emotional learning. Okay, and then we could even dig in. What do you mean by that? Which part of that? What do you want to actually get them to develop? So anytime that you want to develop expertise, I want to say you look at something that students aren't learning and what you've identified is an area that we need to enhance expertise. 
Sometimes the expertise enhancement has to be about content knowledge. Sometimes it has to be about pedagogy. Sometimes it has to be about knowledge of these students. Sometimes I've had teachers that are amazing at teaching in this context with these kids, but they bring that same level of expertise to these kids and it's not working for them. Has anyone seen this before? Because they don't yet have expertise in how to motivate these kids to learn. And it's okay, other teachers have got that, but they need to stop saying, well, I'm a quality teacher with 20 years or five years or three years in the profession and these kids are getting in the way of my good teaching. And they need to say, I've got great content knowledge. I know how to teach that content knowledge. I don't yet have knowledge of these students that allows me to progress learning forward. I actually need to do some expertise development. Everything is about the enhancement of expertise. So, it's all right, I'm just putting coffee on the ground. All right. So, one of your problems in the science of expertise is experience does not lead to expertise after about the first five years. You get a little bit better by being there. What's your name? Gentleman with the awesome beard. Dominic, you've got a great beard. When I hit puberty, I'm going to get one. <laughs> so, um, Dominic, you will, the data would suggest, get incre- incredibly better in the first one to five years. And then the danger is, the danger is that not because you're not committed, but because your school or your school system hasn't set up structures for adult learning and continuous improvement of expertise, that you might flatline. Best example of this I can give you is how we often flatline in our capacity to cook who started down the, the low end? Is anyone still married to someone who's still at the low end? You've been enabling the whole time. <laughs> Most of us get much better in the first five years out of home when we move in with other people and we slowly add recipes. What Dominic's doing at the moment is he's slowly adding recipes. He's learning from good people around him. He's picking up craft. He's codifying it, like learning from Jamie Oliver or someone else. And pretty soon, he might already be there. He's going to be a pretty competent teacher. Kids are lucky to have him there. And for most of us, we can do a great career in competence. Just being in the competent mode. Just being in the competent mode. There's very little terrible teaching. Lots of really competent, good teaching. So what often happens in our cooking life is that when you're busy and you're somewhere a mid-career professional, you often find that you cook about 10 meals 80% of the time. Who's with me on that? If you analyze, especially April, May, you're like, okay, how many... Are there some meals that come almost every week or fortnight? Your default meals. Give me a couple of default meals. Sushi. Whoa, I want to go to your house. <laughs> Are you there putting on your... Sh- cutting it up? Or you're like, let's go out for sushi rolls. All right. So um, what are some default meals here? Fajitas. It sounds good. Pasta, someone said. Spaghetti bolognese. What else? Oh, shepherd's pie. They're pretty much the same things, like tacos, bolognese, shepherd's pie. It's like, for me, that's just do one big batch, and each day is one of those ones, right? The underlying meat thing can be pretty much just change the sauce, change the topping, let's go. But what I want you to know is it takes a lot to get competent and then most of us flatline. And it's got nothing to do with commitment. It's got nothing to do with not being interested in food. It's got everything to do with being overloaded, overwhelmed, and we've already got enough competence to make it through our kitchen life. And so it's possible to spend multiple decades in the kitchen and not get better at cooking. Here's the problem. Sometimes fluency is misjudged as expertise. So my default meal would be spaghetti bolognese, right? I can now cook it with a 15-kilogram toddler on my side while I get some other kids stop writing on the wall. While I'm thinking about work, I can cook bolognese. Who can cook something without thinking it? Great. You're very fluent. My question is, does it taste better than it did five years ago? Fluency often gets misjudged for competence. It's not. Fluency just means it's easier to do. It doesn't mean it's having any more impact. 
take this through with me for the teaching. There are a lot of people in the classroom now who can survive the day and get in the car and they're not as tired as they were 10 years ago. They are more fluent. Sometimes I go into colleagues' classrooms and they demonstrate a lesson at absolute fluency. They are so proud they are in flow, flow state, effortless. They've been here before. I can see it. They're almost riffing. But it's really a four out of ten lesson on impact for kids or impact for kids that are now in their classroom that didn't used to be in that classroom 10 years ago, but with the changing face of our burden education, Saskatoon education, New South Wales experts, that process that used to get a 7 out of 10 is now a 4 out of 10. It's not differentiated to the needs of those kids, but the teacher is still cooking it and very excited about how fluent she is or how fluent he is. There is no judgment there, but it's what happens. And my question is, what is your school division doing to invest in getting every teacher up to becoming, enjoying the... The, the experience of being an adaptive expert in numeracy and formative assessment. What are you doing to allow them not to make them, not to force them? I'm not saying any of that. So they get to experience the joy of developing mastery. So if you look at the evidence on expertise, there's a really simple answer in the sector outside of education. And education is only just finding it. It's called deliberate practice. People don't get better at stuff by spending more time in the kitchen. They get better at stuff by deliberately practicing one part of their cooking. Has anyone spent money sending their kid to a piano lesson or uh, some sort of lesson? And after a few weeks, you're like, this is a waste of money because they're not practicing. Hands up. Who's particularly annoyed because they were that type of student as well? Right. And so one of the things you realize is you don't get better at a piano by going to piano lessons. You get better at piano by practicing based on the feedback from the piano lesson between the piano lessons. You don't get better at piano by going to a piano lesson. You get better by practicing what they gave you. Uh, If the piano lesson is long enough, sometimes you'll start that deliberate practice in the lesson, right? Because they'll let you do a bit of it there and you might get a little bit better, like a tennis coach, do a little bit of practice, but then you've got to practice before the next time you see them or you won't get much better. It's how surgeons get better. It's how sports athletes get better. It's pretty much any person who wants to develop expertise, you have to engage in what we call in the literature deliberate practice. Andrews Erickson is the key psychology professor who's really demonstrated, uh, the, I guess, the strength of this approach to performance. His airport book is called Peak, um, and there's another uh, free paper, Practice with Purpose, that's applying his thinking to teacher development. But this has been utterly absent from most collaborative inquiry models. Collaborative inquiry models, and I'm a big fan of them, what's often happened is that they've said it's about the teacher learning, but then it gets so caught up in the student learning that no one's actually being clear about whether we are deliberately pushing outside our comfort zone and practicing a part of our craft such that at the end of this, we would be able to do it again later on. And so if you want to actually develop expertise, it normally involves three steps. You've got to study a little bit. You've got to get new input. This might be going and seeing the tennis coach, my instructional coach, getting some new input. You've got to get me out of autopilot. Otherwise, I'll just stay in autopilot doing what works well for me. Preferably, you want to give me new input from an instructional coach, an expert, a peer, or some research to open me up to new thinking and to decide what I should work on next. Does that make sense? If I'm going to get better on something, I'm going to have to think. I've got to open myself up. It's not the natural way, and I've got to choose something small. And so normally, this is done in conversation, social learning, talking with each other, opening up. Very few people can be a self-learner. Who gave up on that a while ago, like me? I just get around other people. Because then I don't have to be that motivated to get better because I use the peer effects to get better. Second step in 
deliberately practicing anything is the practicing, the S practicing. We always talk about practice, the S practicing, getting in, pushing in, trying something out. And then lastly, the updating, spending a bit of time reflecting. And literally what you're doing is you're updating your neural networks of your expertise. Should I keep the way I currently think about things or should I rewire the way I think about the improvement of kids in this area? That's all sprints is. Prepare, sprint, review. Isn't that easier to say than all the stuff I just said? Best critique I get of sprints is, is that all it is? I go, yep, unless you want to scratch it and go and have a look. Is everything I know about the science of expertise, everything I know about the literature on professional learning boiled down to the essence, to something that might be doable for people. What we do is we choose an area to work on. We ask people to prepare social learning, opening up around the research, looking at the data, choose an area we're going to deliberately improve. Second step is we deliberately practice. Does anyone follow a sports team that only plays one night a week? I know baseball and hockey play a lot, but what's a sport that plays one night a week? Football. Who's your football team? Seals. What else? I got a Rough Riders jersey at home. I don't know why, but I do. I do. I wear it when I garden. I represent. Someone gave it to me and I wear it when I garden. It's great. The kids are like, oh, you're mowing the lawn. Yep. Rough Riders. Woo. All right. <laughs> My kids have such a weird impression of you guys. The bears, the maple syrup, the hockey jerseys, the Rough Riders thing. They don't know what's going on. So here's what I want you to know. Most sports teams spend 80% of their time practicing and then they only show up to show that practice one time a week or three times a week. Teachers, when I say it's practice time, what they think about is when the students aren't there. So when I say teacher learning, they say, oh, listening to you, reading something, talking at a PLC, uh, looking at data. I'm like, no, no, practice should be your deliberate practice, but we don't have a, we don't have a practice classroom. So I've talked to some trustees and I reckon what we need to do is to get a practice classroom. We'll get all unpaid actors in there. They'll be cheap. And Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So I'd go in the morning, on Monday morning, and I'd go to my PLC or my teacher learning community or my sprints. I don't care about the name, right? But you're running the sprints process inside it. And I'd prepare. And then I'd spend multiple days in the practice classroom trying out the approaches. Maybe I'm using a new approach to uh, trauma-informed pedagogy, behavioral management with those students we really want to serve better. And I go in, the practice room is ready, and I go in, and 15 minutes in, I revert to my default mode. The class is going poorly, and I say, can we stop? My mentor at the back goes, yeah, you just went straight back into the old power dynamics. You, you, I know, what was I doing? I don't know. The class laughs a little bit. I said, let's reset it. And I go out, just like running a drill. And I'd come back in, let's run it again. And I'm practicing, I'm practicing, and by day three, I'm getting better. Then we let the kids come on Friday, only Friday. <laughs> I nail it. I'm at four o'clock drinks with my colleagues, up for another week. That's what footballers do. Why shouldn't teaching get to be like football? Well, it's not. So how do we solve it? You've got to choose some of your performance to also be your practice. Two to three percent of your week should also be your practice. That's what we call the sprint go, I've got to sprint in all areas. Well, that's not going to work. You're going to be exhausted by morning tea. So the sprint is a deliberate practice improvement time. And then we've got to bring it together. Stop after four weeks to review what's happening. Sometimes people say, oh, well, what happens if we haven't finished the sprint? I said, you finished it. Four weeks is up. We always stop after four weeks. You get four weeks 
to go and enjoy exploring, building capacity, having impact, collecting evidence. And at the end of that, even if we didn't move it, we still stop, we review, we say what did we learn, and then we take the next steps. That's what we're at at with sprints. All right. Turn the person next to you and say, what is a question you still have about sprints? Go for it. Okay. So... This is one of those things that uh, I can't kind of BS audiences talking in the high money because there's people everywhere, the real experts who are using this stuff. And can I just say, we as a community don't have this all worked out. It is really hard to work out how to, even a simple process, how do you craft the time? How do we work with people to show this isn't an extra thing, but a better way to do the improvement work they're already trying to do? Um, everything's up online, so resources, tools, everything you need. But... Kate, I thought I saw her in the audience, and uh, of course, it's always great to be voluntold. Um, yeah. <laughs> Kate, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and how you find sprints plays out in your work? Okay, well, my name's Kate Morrison. I'm from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Any other one out there? Saskatchewan, yeah. anyone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I got the pleasure of working with Simon uh, last year for a bit to kind of get the learning sprints intro. I'm a resource teacher, so I work in supporting students who are not working at the level that maybe we expect them to be, lots of interventions, small group work. And Sprints has a wonderful place in the classroom, but in my opinion, it has an amazing place in the resource room in supporting those students. So the students I work with often, and last year I started with literacy, they're often working one, two, three, four years behind where we would expect them to be. So that is a mountain of areas they need to improve in. All those areas, just multiply them by the years and years and years. And as a resource teacher, I'm trying to find, okay, how do I make them improve in fluency and in decoding and in vocabulary and all of this? And through thinking about this, I went, let's wait and step back and think about what do the kids really need? What's that first step? So I've taken sprints and within my either groups that I have or even each student, I sometimes have a specific sprint for that student. And the way I started it was we were working lots with phonological awareness and that as the bedrock and we found a lot of our students were really falling down with phonological awareness. And I said, okay, I'm going to take this, and this is going to be my sprint. And for the next two, three weeks with these students, I'm going to work on this skill. And each student in a group had a different piece they were working on. And I noticed I was making a better improvement, and the students were seeing that they were making improvements. Instead of me trying to get them to work on all of these things, not that we didn't work on them, but we picked one focus, and they saw oh, I can do this. I can make that next step. And then you go, okay, so where's our next step? And we can go from there. And we've started to broaden that out into working on math. We've been working this year on addition and subtraction with our two threes. Same kind of thing. They might be way behind, but we're taking those little steps. So for my world, it's completely shifted the way that I approach the work I do with students. And I find it more successful and I find the students see themselves more successfully, which is the whole goal. Great. Round of applause. Um Thanks so much. So uh, when I say an example, that is a description, not a prescription, right? So she's taking it and doing exactly what I'm talking about next door. Don't take the shiny idea. Don't do a prepackaged solution. Take the intent. Make it work. And now in Kate's head, there is deeper expertise in teaching phonological awareness to students who couldn't access it through the traditional ways that were being taught. She has now become a more expert teacher in those areas, in numeracy, building out. I mean, she is already already phonologically aware. I can attest to that, right? She has phonological awareness. It's the teaching of it that's hard. Building that knowledge, building it up, 
piece by piece. Okay. Well, um, we're right on the dot of 12, and I just want to say thanks so much for coming to this one-hour introduction. Hold two things in mind. One is, learning sprints is really simple. Prepare, sprint, review. You can pick it up as an individual, as a team, as a group. Try it out. Mess around with it. See how it works. But don't um, look at its simplicity and think that it's simplistic. This has been hard won by a community of educators working alongside me and the team to try to find a process that's both rigorous and human. You'll have lots of questions about how to make it work. All the tools you need are already online, supports for professional dialogue, about 50 research links you can use to inform your sprint, uh, implementation processes you can lead. And I've seen schools that I've never, ever met in person fully implement this process purely by taking agency and backing themselves to make the right decisions for their context. So please do use the resources online. Uh, it is super simple to find either direct or just click on the link on my site. And again, the only rule is when you make it better and you will, let us know. Mark, I'll hand over to you. Are you bringing us to a close? Yeah, I went and found them. They were hidden in the bar. So um, uh, the wonderful ATA, Mark, if you want to take some that way, I'll have some here. We have about 200 copies of, uh, look, it's all online. You can download it. Uh, but, you know, sometimes people like things in their goodie bag. So uh, it's just the sprints model, examples of the tools we use for professional dialogue and the implementation model. So, Mark, why don't you just put, that's going to take too long, put a pile at the back, a pile at the front, and let them fight for it. Okay. Okay.